If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Frank and Jesse James come to Kentucky. Welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. History is full of curious stories you will never discover in any textbook. We uncover fun facts about historical people, interesting places, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. And today we're going to talk about uh, Frank and Jesse James coming to Kentucky. And Harold, I'm going to have to admit, most of what I know about Frank and Jesse James has to be fiction. Because everything I really know is from movies, TV shows, and I know they like to embellish the truth. And, you know, sometimes the, the real facts don't make a good movie. So can we clear some of that up today? Well, I hope so. Uh, I've done quite a bit of study on these guys, probably for about 25 years, I guess. Uh, and I was a, the same way. I always thought of Jesse James as a cowboy outlaw. And uh, movies, you know, they're they're uh, they're made for entertainment. They're not supposed to be historic documentaries, you know. They're made for entertainment. So sometimes uh, through that entertainment, we get a warped view of reality. And uh, so hopefully through this podcast, the next couple podcasts we're going to do, we'll find the truth versus fiction, and we'll see what we can do to help find out who the real Jesse and Frank James were. That's good because, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to accomplish in this podcast is kind of clear up a lot of the, the, the fiction about their true history and also talk about their time in Kentucky because a lot of people don't know they spent quite a bit of time in Kentucky and had, had some roots here in Kentucky. Sure, yeah. There was a, there's a long history of, of them being here in Kentucky and friends, and uh, we'll get into all that in, in great detail. We'll talk about all their bank robberies in Kentucky and their escapades here who they stayed with, when they stayed with. Uh, we want to solve some mysteries that are out there, misconceptions as well. So this is going to be fun. This is one of my. This is one I've been looking forward to for some time. All right, where do you want to get started? Well, uh, first of all, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about, we talked about the movies and and the, uh, the modern world that we live in versus the world they lived in, but... Um, it's 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 a mystery to most people that are that study the Jameses. First of all, how they became so popular. You know, how did this? How they become quote almost folk heroes? How how is it that? Why was Hollywood so interested in them? Um, there's been I think I have 20 movies that have been made about the Jameses, and it started back as early as 1939. Uh, and if you give me a minute here, I'll just read off of some of these. Uh, as late as 2007, there was one made called The Assassination of Jesse James. As early as 1939, the movie was titled just simply Jesse James. Uh, in 1994, there was Frank and Jesse James. 
1966, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Wait a minute. Excuse me, 1986. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Yep. I, now, that's, that's going to be a fiction. That's out there. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of out there. Uh, 1949, I shot Jesse James. 1957, the true story of Jesse James. And uh, anyway, there's so many movies uh, that I didn't list. I mean, but it's not just movies. You know, in media, I don't know, there was many, many books written about the Jameses. Uh, it started in actually, before, you know, while they were alive. And um, video games, comics, music, stage productions, films, television, radio, YouTube, all media productions that, that was, is included in this and story. Even during their time when they were alive, the, the dime store novels, is that correct? The, right. The, that people would write about them, I'm sure embellished a great deal about their, their acts and different things right. that they were involved uh-huh. in. Sure. They did have an element of truth to them, and that's what makes them a little bit more compelling. And it makes it a little more interesting to read because the people, when those dime store novels were per, uh, published, they were uh, in the time frame of the Jameses. So people either knew about some of the things they did, banks they robbed, trains they robbed, and so forth, or um, uh, they were witnesses to this, so that made it a little more interesting to them because they thought that everything they were reading was probably the truth. One of the guys that probably had the most influence early turning these outlaws into folk heroes was a gentleman by the name of John Newman Edwards. No no relation here. Uh, he was a p- editor of the Kansas City Times newspaper. And he was a former Confederate soldier, served with Joe Shelby out there in Missouri. And uh, he, he might say had an axe to grind. You know, Reconstruction was going on. He did not want to, to accept the, the outcome of the war. He continued to believe in <laughs> the Southern cause. And, you know, he, in, in all his writings, I mean, he continued to fight the war through the newspaper, basically. So he turned the James boys into somewhat folk heroes in the sense that not only were they, quote, carrying on the Confederate cause, but they were also, you know, against big business, big banks and railroads. See, they be- the railroads got very powerful. They became very unpopular with a lot of people. And uh, so they had uh, might have abused their power a little bit. I, you know, I don't know the whole story about that, but it was popular with some people at that time that these guys were like fighting on the cause. So that might be the start of what we know of as the media uh, bias to make these guys more than they were. And so, uh, like Daniel Boone said one time, that uh, history had ca- taken great liberties with him. <laughs> so maybe if they could talk to them today, they'd probably say that history had taken great liberties with them. So what was the West really like? Where was the West at this time when they were alive? And what was the world like? Well, I think the thing that got me interested in the James guys, uh, boys, uh, was I, when I found out the West really wasn't the West as I imagined it to be. In my mind, I always thought of the West as Texas, California, Arizona, Oklahoma, maybe. You know, the, I think West, as we know it today, the far West. But during the Civil War era and during the time that they grew up in, the West as we know it uh, then was basically everything west of the Allegheny Mountains, and the especially across the Mississippi River. That was considered the far west. So they really never went far west. 
their life was mostly Texas, Missouri. Uh, they went up to Minnesota, robbed a bank, Kentucky, uh, Tennessee. They spent a great deal of time in Tennessee. So, you know, my imagine, you know, being Western, quote, characters, Western cowboys, it, it totally blew that away because that's not the world they lived in. What was it like, you know, the West like during this time? Well, uh, when railroads started connecting places, it made the world a little smaller. Prior to that, you know, steamboats and, and river traffic was the, the, the avenue of commerce. But the railroads began, when they started linking small towns together, uh, it made travel a lot easier. And part of the James's story, how they covered such great distances, was because they could put their horses on a, on a railroad car and go many miles without wearing out their horses so that's something you hardly ever hear about in their stories how they could get so far they range so far i've been to a lot of the places where the james's where they grew up uh, i've been to a lot of places here in kentucky where they were uh, tennessee uh, kansas i've been all over uh, chasing these stories and it just amazed me the whole time we'd be driving i'd tell my wife i said can you imagine riding a horse this far i mean it's just mind-boggling what the distances that they covered or even a wagon, do yeah. it you know, if you had to travel by wagon. Yeah, in their time, you know, um, they they robbed nineteen to twenty banks, depending on some of them. They're not sure exactly who was there or whatever. Uh, twenty people died as a, re- a result. Seven of their own gang was killed. Um, so they, they they went as far as um, Minnesota to the north, West Virginia to the east, and Texas to the south. Do you know how much the average bank job they would make when they robbed? Do you have any idea about how much money they would pull? I don't know the average bank job, but I know that they um, stole approximately $200,000 in all their robberies, which if you you convert that to today's money would be $4.8 million. So they were just quite a bit of money. It was a lot of money back then, sure. Uh Now, here's the thing that you also got to keep in mind. If you had seven or eight guys in a gang, you had divided all that money up. You know, everybody was at the same risk, so I don't know of anything but other than they divided it up equally. Just because Jesse was more known than, say, Dick Little or somebody that was in his in his gang with him, that doesn't mean the, the lesser known got less. No, they all got the same, so they all took the same risk. So he really didn't get all of that 200000 right? but his portion of it, you know. But still quite a bit of money for those days and there's a lot of these stories about jesse james buried gold and all this stuff i i've never believed any of them i never found any of them credible and that's you know i've seen a lot on history channel what is it knights of the golden circle that he was was involved in and they've buried money and i've seen some different yeah well you can't never say never because i you know we none of us could know everything about all these guys and i i have more questions than i have answers to be honest with you but um I would have to see proof of that. You know, I'm not saying it couldn't exist. There was a Knights of the Golden Circle. And by the way, Brian, we might do a podcast on that because they were centered in Kentucky. Really? A good chapter of them here. I didn't oh, know yeah. that. Bloomfield, did Kentucky. Wow. Oh, yeah. And there, there is some connection here, you know, a little loosely, but um, there's some couple of good books on the Golden Circle. We'll get into that in a later podcast. But but Frank and Jesse, they, you know, they got around. There ain't no doubt about it, boys. You guys was on the move all the time. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about frontier violence in Missouri and Kansas what was the problem what was the issues going on well um it's pretty complicated and there's probably a lot more to it than we have time for I know I don't know everything about it but 
I know that Missouri was a uh, free state, Kansas was a slave state, excuse me, backwards. Missouri was a slave state, Kansas was a free state, and uh, they were trying to admit Kansas into the Union, and there was this great struggle with admitting it as a free state or a slave state. And so there's this violence broke out on the border. Um, Missourians would go over into Kansas and, and make raids. Uh, Kansasans would come into Missouri and make raids. And the, the, the violence just escalated, you know, with the war coming. Violence escalated. Um, it really got nasty out there. And this is the world that James grew up in. And so this, I think, as much as anything, influenced them in their early life. All right. What about uh, Frank and Jesse's background, his parents? I know he had a couple stepdads and that helped raise both uh, both of the boys. What was that like? Well, um, let's talk a little bit about their family background because um, for those of us Kentuckians, I know everybody that listens to this podcast uh, is not from Kentucky, but um, uh, since we are, we've always been the most interested in what happened here locally. But Robert uh, Salee James was, was – uh, Frank and Jesse's dad. Uh, he was from near Adairville, Kentucky. I don't know much about his childhood, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, I've never read much about him. But he's an exceptional person in, the, in that time. He was born in 1818. Um, the first that I really know of him is when he was at Georgetown College in Georgetown, Kentucky, which is a Baptist theological seminary, I think, at that time. And uh, it's a Baptist-affiliated college today. Um, evidently, he was a very, very good student. Um, he had became a minister. Um, Frank and Jesse's mother was a Zerelda Cole. She was from near Midway, Kentucky. And uh, there's a famous tavern there that's still standing at an intersection. Um, it has a couple names. It's called Black Horse Tavern and Cole's Tavern. And it's, uh, it's her parents ran that, I think maybe even grandparents. And so um, if you're in that area, you could stop by there and see that. Um, but that's where Zarelda was from. They met, um, Robert was preaching in Lexington, and um, they, that's where he met Zarelda. Now, he was seven years older than her, and uh, they fell in love, and they got married at the James Lindsay home, which was in Stamping Ground, Kentucky, not too far from Midway, Kentucky. Um, Zarelda's mother, Zarelda, Cole, now James' mother, um, lost her husband in 1838. And the reason I'm mentioning that is is because her mother remarried a Thompson and moved to Clay County, Missouri. And I often wondered, why did they leave Kentucky and go to Missouri? So that's the answer. She actually went out there to be probably closer to her mother. Now, uh, Robert accepted a church out there and... Uh, when he went there, there was it was New Hope Baptist Church there in, near Kearney, Missouri, and uh, after they were married, he he was licensed, you know. And so, when he started in that church, Brian, there was twenty members. Okay. And within a year, it had grew ninety four percent. I mean, excuse me, two hundred and fifty two percent to ninety four people. Wow. So obviously, this man was was uh, was gifted. Yes. And uh, blessed, and he he made a difference. And uh, we're going to tell you more about that. And 1843, Alexander Franklin James was born. Uh, their dad had purchased a 275-acre farm with, some, with an inheritance that he had gotten. Uh, in September of 1847, Jesse was born. And uh, in 1848, uh, Mr. James Robert was awarded a Master of Arts degree from Georgetown College. 
1849, he became trustee, uh, one of the trustees of William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. Now, here's where the story changes. You know, it's kind of dry and boring up to that point. But then, all of a sudden, uh, his church has grown to 250 members in six and a half years. He's grown 784%. Kind of did a little math. Just kind of, it's like 120% a year or something like that. Yeah. And he leaves and goes to California to the gold fields. Really? Yes. Just walks away. Yeah. Now, we don't know what was going on. We don't know the whole motive for it. I don't know if he was going out there for to, to search for gold. Some says he wanted to go out there and start a church. Uh, it just seemed just like out of place for him to just pull up roots with his background and things going extremely well and had little children. And he said... Uh, Frank was just held on to his legs when he was leaving, you know. Now, here's another strange story about him. Um, he goes out there, and he dies of typhoid. Okay. His grave for years was a mystery. They, you know, people, and they finally found it. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of a mystery where he ended up, you know, because he never come back. You know, they didn't send the body home or anything. Um, and he, his last letter, uh, he said, give all my love to to all uh, inquiring friends and keep a portion for yourself and kiss Jesse for me and tell Franklin to be a good boy and learn fast. And that was his last letter to his family, or part of it, you know. And uh, it's just kind of a sad story. That he is. Never came home. That, you know, that seems like a character for everything that was going on in his life just to up and move yeah. all the way to California. So, All right, so let's get to the Civil War. What, what happens when the Civil War breaks out? Okay, well, I'll, I'll t mention this just a second before we jump into that. Uh, Zarelda remarried in a couple of years, um, and she married a fellow named Benjamin Sims. Uh, didn't go well. Benjamin uh, dies of a horse, falls off a horse, and, and dies. The third husband was Dr. Reuben Samuel, and Dr. Samuel was really good to the boys. I think they remembered him as being a, a more of a dad to him than anyone, and they really liked him. Um, they married... Him and Zarelda married, and he moved to the farm with them and helped her take care of the, the farm, and he seemed to be a good influence on the boys at that time. Dr. Samuels was uh, uh, out, in the, out on the farm one day, and uh, Union soldiers rode up. Frank had joined General Joe Selby's army, I think, at that time when the war had broken out. Uh, he had then switched and went with Quantrell, uh, William Clark Quantrell, who was famous for the raid on Lawrence, Kansas. And um, they were looking for Frank. They came to the farm. Mr. Samuels probably really didn't know where he was. And they took a rope and they hung it around his neck and they pulled him up in a tree. And um, there was several times that he, that supposedly that they did this. And he got... He, he, he actually suffered brain damage from this. Oh, man. Jesse was a young boy. He was there, witnessed all this. Um, you can imagine the, uh, the things that he saw. They whipped him with horse hames, they said, beat him severely. And uh, this is one of the things that they think that influenced Jesse so much, maybe embittered him so much, because after, after that point, he hated the federal government. He hated federal soldiers. He, he looked at them all as the ones that, were, that came to their farm. Um, the James boys also had some earlier influences. Um, 
their mother, uh, Zerelda's mother, married a Thompson, and his brother. If you bear with me, this is kind of. His brother was Wild Bill Thompson, <laughs> a real Western character, okay? Okay. He was a mountain man. Uh, he'd served in the Mexican War. Uh, he could shoot and fight and cut and, and with the best of them. And he was around the boys a lot, and they really, really looked forward to him coming to visit. And when he came, he would take them out and teach them all these things. And that's one of their favorite family members was their uh, grandmother's new husband. Yeah. So they learned basically uh, the tricks of the trade from from him. Well, they learned a lot from him. I mean, they they learned to, and, and he made them tough. You know, of course, I'm sure out there you didn't need too much of that to make you tough because of the world they lived in. But um, you know, hunting bears, the stories he did and everything, he would take them hunting and and uh, teach them all the skills that you needed to survive out in the wilds. And uh, they remembered him very well as well. Um, the world they lived in, that Missouri conflict, that violence that they lived in obviously influenced them. Um, the Civil War at that t- started in 1861, you know, there's a, there's, it's hard to find in these stories in their part of the world out there good guys, so to speak, in the sense that there was so much hatred and bitterness and violence that was passed back and forth that it made bad people seem like out of everybody, you know. Right, just, so you had the bitterness and the violence between the two, Missouri and Kansas. Right. Then you had the federal government coming in and treating them the way they did, the Union soldiers. So that formed a lot of their... Right. Well, it's like Quantrell, you know, he uh, he was in revenge for a, a, a Union raid in Missouri. He goes to Lawrence, Kansas, and butchers like 200 people. Wow. Men and boys. They come into town and raid his town, and they're not obviously surprised. They don't know they're coming. And it's a very violent, bitter struggle going on here. And they're, they're right in the middle of it. You know, and they could, I don't know if you could avoid it. Now, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I've often thought about that. How would you avoid that if you grew up, if it was in your back door every day? How would you handle it, you know? Exactly, and, and, and you know the psychological damage that it, that it caused those two young boys. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to read the Quantrail. You know, the guerrilla warfare was a a bunch of irregulars. It, it evolved. It depends on what time of the war you're talking about. As the war progressed, uh, the guerrilla warfare got got more uh, uncontrolled. I guess you'd say they really it it, it turned into a, just almost outlaws by the end of the war. Now this was both sides. It wasn't one side or the other. This was both sides, and um, the Quantrail was quite a master tech it it seemed to me that he was just gifted in this area he could almost had a sixth sense of of how things were going to go down and what he was supposed to do he could almost have eyes in the back of his head he's very he was very good guerrilla fighter and uh, he had his tactics were unusual in the sense that he was one of the first people that i'm aware of that he would dress as federal soldier he had always men you know he would capture soldiers keep their uniforms and they would dress as union soldiers to complicate things (laughs) so if he come riding into a town you would assume by his dress that he was union and that's what he wanted to and then after he got to the objective of why he came there all of a sudden you realized that this guy he's not he's not union well let's talk about guerrilla warfare 
exactly what is guerrilla warfare because that's what his job was. The best description I know of guerrilla warfare is when you leave your home and you take the fight to the enemy, and that that tactic of irregular fighting, the problem with that is you leave your home exposed. In the Napoleonic-style warfare, marching armies going across capturing territory and land and towns and so forth, and then occupying them, and then setting up, obviously, after the fact, the government and, and, and so forth. Well, in guerrilla warfare, it's just a matter of terror and intimidation and destruction. You know, you could burn bridges that the enemy would use. You could uh, burn houses or, or uh, you know, you targeted single uh, individuals sometimes that were um, the, the leader of a group or a, a politician or all kinds of things that they targeted. And a lot of times it was just stealing. You know? right. They didn't really have a military objective. And see, as the war progressed, that seemed to be the way it became. And the numbers of those guys, you know, they get they killed. You know, they, 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 it was like thirty like percent of them survived. So the the mission wasn't to extend the front line of the of the battlefront, but basically to hit and run specific targets, and then retreat back and hit somewhere else. Yeah, and it's pretty typical of all wars to resort to guerrilla fighting when you're losing too. You know, when the when your main armies are being defeated. That's about the only option you have left. So that's kind of, like I said, it's a natural progression that the way... Because it takes less troops actually to perform those duties than it would to actually line up and and, and have a battle. Yeah, I've got a little thing I want to read about. uh, It takes a little long. I'll I'll try to make it short as I can. But to give you a little idea from a witness that was there, and it also involves Frank James. So this is about about Quantrell... um, and this comes, by the way, from uh, Frank and Jesse James by Ted Yateman, which is a really good book if anybody's interested in reading more about the Jameses. said, the commander had a fire built at their headquarters. Now, this was in uh, Tacoma, uh, Missouri. Missouri, uh-huh. And this was, uh, they were riding into a Union situation here. says, the commander had built a uh, fire built in their headquarters, and they were invited us in. Now, they had rode into town. <laughs> they thought they were Federals. Mm-hmm. He said, the Federals were standing around the room, and we circled between them and the fire, and they got between, excuse me, got between them and their arms, which were stacked in the center of the room. And we heard Quantrell, who had remained outside with the commander, tell him to surrender. So immediately we drew our revolvers and told the Federals that they were mistaken in their men, that they were Confederate soldiers, and they were under arrest. They all promptly obeyed except one man who attempted to get out a window when Frank James gently tapped him on the head and put a pistol to the back of his head and told him to get back in line or he might be seriously hurt. <laughs> okay. We, uh, we marched the militia out into the street and placing the guards over them. The rest of us uh, proceeded to take their guns, break the stocks off with them, and throw them into the river. Seeing us do this, one of the militiamen explained, Well, what is the world? Are they throwing our good guns in the river for. For we are Union men as they are, to his commander. He said, well, you damn fool, they are Southern men, and we are all prisoners. <laughs> so he hadn't figured out what was going well, on yet. Bless his heart, he just couldn't get it. <laughs> you know. But again, that's, that's kind of typical of what happened uh, in guerrilla warfare. Right. You know? and, it, and it was very, very hard to detect who's who. So um, we move on to the story. 
the Jameses uh, are with Quantrell. Now, in 1864, Jesse gets wounded. He gets shot. Uh, he's, he's shot in the lung. Um, and as Quantrell starts his to leave Missouri, things were getting pretty hot on him out there. He lost a lot of men. I don't know all the reasons why he came to Kentucky. Um, it's a little bit of a mystery to me. There's some says that he came to Kentucky on his way to Richmond, Virginia, to meet with Jeff Davis. Um, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I just don't have anything that that would make me think that it's true. Because if he, if that was the case, why did he stay on in Kentucky? Why didn't he go on to Richmond? You know? Right. Um, so he comes to Kentucky. He enters the state in the through Memphis. Comes up through Memphis. Comes into Western Kentucky. Comes across, and then he comes into Houstonville, Kentucky. Well, who who was William C. Quantrell? We will, I would like to do Brian a podcast just on him because uh, he's a, a, an interesting story in himself. But he was born in Canal Dover, Ohio. Um, he actually went to Kansas first, and he was a he. He seemed to be a person that was looking for a cause. I don't know how else to say it. Um, he, he was a school teacher at one time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, and he got involved in this violence out there. And then he went over into Missouri, and that seemed to be the place that he chose to, the side that he chose to, to fight for. And so he formed these guerrillas, and he, he developed his reputation one of being one of the bloodiest, you know, men of the war, uh, one, of the, one of the most ruthless guerrillas of the war. And there's a great story about him here in Kentucky, and we're going to get into that in a later podcast. But he was a mysterious character. He really was. Uh, I've, I've spent many years trying to figure him out and what his objectives were. But... Uh, yeah, he was quite a character. Um, they came into Kentucky. Like I said, they end up. The first really notable thing that I wanted to talk about was they rode into Houstonville, Kentucky. Okay. Now this is just exactly like this other episode that I read. They come riding in with Union uniforms. I said they were with the Fourth uh, Missouri Cavalry Union. You know, nobody knew who they were because they'd never been here before, right? Okay. Now they did. Now let's back up a little bit. A lot of Quantrell's men had family in Kentucky. See the natural movement west. You had people from Kentucky moving to Missouri and then Missouri on to Cal. You know, and that was the same with Virginia to Kentucky, so forth. But there's a lot of these guys that had roots and family in Kentucky, and some of them had lived in Kentucky and moved west. So it I, that had a lot, I think, to do with him coming here. To be honest with you, but um, the Fourth Missouri Cavalry he he claimed to be with. He rides into Houstonville posing as Union soldiers, and they stop at Weatherford Stable, and they need fresh mounts. Now, we don't think about things like this today because we get in a car and fill up with gas and take off. But they needed fresh horses constantly. It was a constant problem, and they would ride them to death. I mean, they would ride a horse till it was broke down and it couldn't, couldn't recover from it. And it was, it was a constant thing of them stealing horses so they rode in posing as union soldiers there was a, a, a union guy there that had served two years in the union army his name was G.F. Cunningham he was a lieutenant and he had a horse out in this stable where they go into the hotel I guess they get something to eat they're milling around they're talking to these quote home guard which were union soldiers there right and somebody comes in and tells Cunningham, hey, they're out there, somebody's out there in the barn getting your horse. 
So he runs out there and says, oh, no, no. He said, I've served two years in the Union Army. You're not taking my horse. And the guy that was taking it was going to be future Jesse James' brother-in-law, Alan Parmer. Okay. So Alan says, yeah, I am taking him. And he, they get into an argument, and he pushes him back, and he says, I'm telling you, I'm taking this horse. He said, well, you'll take this horse over my dead body. And that's exactly what he did. He pulled his pistol and shot him right in the head. Oh, wow. So then they became obvious that, you they know, weren't union. Yeah, and then, uh, and then the, the roost was over. Yeah. So they uh, they ride up. Cunningham, by the way, is buried in Houstonville Cemetery. And there's a date there. You can go look him up, and you can get the year. And I've done all this. To, you know, that's helped you kind of prove these stories. Um, and it's it's kind of a sad commentary to what was going on in Kentucky. Now, this happened a lot. Okay, now, we're going to get in later. We're going to get into every... Uh, bank that they robbed we're going to finish a little bit more about Quantrail here we're going to talk about the banks they robbed we're going to talk about uh places they stayed which is that's another thing that's kind of a mystery uh we're going to go to mammoth cave and talk about what they happened down there so there's a lot of good interesting stories that are going to come out of this and nelson county as well nelson county by the way nelson county is one of the areas that not only the jameses were familiar with but Quantrail, by the way and, and some of the other Kentucky guerrillas that we're going to talk about later, uh, it seemed to be a hotbed of Southern sympathizers. Okay. It seemed to be a safe haven for them. And see, Brian, what, ha- what guerrillas would do different than they didn't all just go out and camp together and sleep. When things got hot, they just break up and, and go different directions and have a prearranged place to come back and meet. Okay. So they knew a lot of people and had a lot of extended family, so they would just disappear. And that's one of their tactics. It made it so hard to get onto these guys because when things got hot on them, they would assimilate into the population and go to friends and family, and hide out. And you, and they you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't find them. So just like ghosts. And the people were going to protect them because, because they had relatives and, and family ties here. Exactly. Okay. And there was a couple of things that you wanted to discuss. Also, uh, the song about Jesse, and then some people didn't believe the day that Jesse was shot. Uh, that was really him. Yeah, that, uh, there was a famous song. It was called, I think, The Ballad of Jesse James. But in one of the lines in that song was, the dirty little coward that shot Mr. Howard and laid poor Jesse in his grave. And Jesse was shot in uh, April of the 13th of 1882. And uh, he was shot by Bob Ford, who was um, had been paid off basically to do this. But uh, we'll get into that later. But... Uh, and there's some people that believe don't excuse me don't believe that Jesse was actually killed in that house, huh. and uh, it got to the point to where um, later they ex- exhumed his body and did a DNA test to prove that it was Jesse. But to a reasonable person, I have you know evidence that while he was in Kentucky, there are artifacts that he had on him that proved that that's who that was. And one so, of the things I know you've told me before is about a pane of glass that he took a he etched his name in to prove he right. was there the day that somebody there was a bank robbed and they said he did it but he he was actually here in Kentucky. Yes. And you found that glass. Yeah, I was down at the Filson Club um, in Louisville, Kentucky, doing an appraisal for him, and I, I looked on a shelf there, and laying on the shelf was this pane of glass. Now I had never seen this before, Brian, but I'd seen a picture of it. 
And I knew as soon as I held it up, I was like, oh, my goodness. And I asked the curator there, I said, oh, do you know what that is? And he said, oh, he's been told it's Jesse Jamel. And it was sent to them. And I said, oh, no, this is this is a real deal. I said, I've, I know about this. So he said, really? And so when Jesse was staying with a, a, a former gorilla uh, that he rode with that stayed in Kentucky after the war, his name was Donnie Pence, and he became sheriff of Nelson County. And Donnie lived there near Samuel's Depot, and Jesse was there at his house cooling off after a robbery somewhere, and he picked up a paper and saw where he was accused of robbing a bank or a train or something in Missouri or Kansas or somewhere. And so he had this diamond ring, and he took this ring, and he scratched his name and dated it in this pane of glass. So um, he could prove that he wasn't there. If he was arrested for this, he'd say, look, you know, go to Donnie Pence's house. Here's a pane of glass. Because, see, that won't deteriorate. It, right. it's, just, it's always there. Well, they tore the house down, and they, but they had the good sense to save that glass. So anyway, I, when I was there, I said, well, gosh, we need to do something with this. I said, don't you all want to exhibit this or something? And they said, well, this really didn't have room for it, you know. So they were building the Kentucky History Center at that time. And I asked them, I said, well, do you mind if I call over there and see if they would accept this? So if you go to the Kentucky History Center today, they have a Jesse James display, and you'll get to see that paint of glass. Okay, so I kind of pulled you off topic a little bit, but I wanted—I thought that was an important story to tell. So people didn't believe that was him and the evidence when he was shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the DNA examination was done on him. Uh, there's really no doubt to a reasonable person, but... The mystery of that has always lingered. Most famous people, you know, assassination of John Kennedy. Uh, Elvis. El it, whatever. You know, there's always, the there's always, you know, that or around it. But when we get to the end of this podcast, I'm going to let our listeners know about a couple artifacts that we know for sure was on Jesse that prove that that was him and he was, he was, it was the guy that bought okay. four shot. And then also you told me that you'd actually spent time at a, a James family reunion in Nashville. Yeah. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about that uh, uh, more. Uh, we will run out of time here, but uh, yeah, I, I went down and I, I forget the year. I'm sorry. We'll get that straightened out in a future podcast. But um, I had hosted the Quantrail Society in Kentucky. We'd taken tours to all these sites and places where uh, some of the Quantrail's men were killed and, Actually, some of the family members came, and we we uh, found graves that they didn't know existed. You know, and it was it was quite uh, rewarding for them to come. And through that, I got involved with the James family uh, reunion. And so, uh, a lot of people don't know, and we're going to talk about this later too, about how much time they spent in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, so, I went to the James family reunion, met them, went on tour with them, um, got to meet his great granddaughter, and so forth. And it's a it's a really neat story. So this is probably going to end up being a two or three episode podcast because there's so much information, even yeah. just here in Kentucky locally, uh, about Frank and Jesse James. And yeah, it's hard to tell a small part of a story that's much bigger than Kentucky. You know, uh, I, I I can't get into all that Missouri stuff because it would take forever. All the stuff they did out there, but it's a it's it's a big story. Uh, it, it covers a lot of territory. A lot of personalities and people involved. Um, it's it's one of Kentucky's <laughs> neat stories. Yes, it is, for sure. and it's not a, it, it's uncommon. It's an uncommon story. Uncommon history right, of the South. Exactly. So thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South podcast. If you'd like to support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends. Leave a five-star review and comment. This will help others find our podcast. 
Also, make sure to friend us on Facebook, and we're now on Twitter and Instagram, so you can like us there. And if you have any questions uh, about the podcast, you could follow the link at the bottom of our show notes and and leave a voice message, and we'll try to include it in one of our uh, future podcasts. So thank you. We'll see you next week.